today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, U.S. President uh, Donald Trump uh, wasn't very kind to Canada at the U.N. General Assembly and uh, basically talked about how uh, Canada and the U.S. weren't getting along, took a shot at Christia Freeland uh, and basically threatened us with uh, tariffs on the auto industry. Here's some of what he had to say. What we're probably going to do is call it the USMC, like the United States Marine Corps, which I love. General Kelly likes it even more. Where's General Kelly? He likes that. USMC which would be U.S., Mexico, Canada. But it'll probably or possibly be just USM. It'll be United States and Mexico. Yes or no? Are you Canada right? will come along. Because his tariffs are too high and he doesn't seem to want to move, and I've told him, forget about it. And frankly, we're thinking about just taxing cars coming in from Canada. That's the mother load. That's the big one. And also there was uh, there's some confusion as to whether there was a meeting that was requested by the prim- uh, prime minister to meet with Donald Trump. Uh, a press, someone in the press asked him uh, that. He said uh, that he basically turned, if there was, if he had turned down a meeting with uh, the prime minister, he said, yes, he had. The prime minister's office said there was no meeting request uh, at all. So what's going on there? Or, or, or just perhaps an interesting question from the press. We're not sure. Uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So it appears uh, uh, Donald Trump is, is going at Justin Trudeau again and uh, even Christia Freeland. Your thoughts about uh, where we are to date and, and, and Justin Trudeau's response that, yeah, we are tough negotiators. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I'm just going to go back before I go forward and just talk about that 82-minute press conference yesterday. I think we in Canada need to understand that the vast majority of that 82 minutes was really dealing with Brent Kavanaugh, with his nomination to the Supreme Court, the Russian investigation, people who've turned and have been you know, sort of tattling on Trump, what have you. And then amazingly, a few questions got asked about NAFTA. NAFTA is not a big issue south of the border. Most papers are, are missing it completely. They like the more sensational stuff. So the fact that he even spoke at all, I was amazed at. And yes, he, he, was, he was nasty towards us because that's the mood he's in these days. Uh, his Supreme Court nominee is in trouble. The Russian investigation is closing. And damn it, I can't get this damn NAFTA done. And, of course, you know, he's mad at Christia Freeland. I think he said that she's a very bad negotiator. Very bad. She's very bad for America. And she doesn't seem to understand very bad. And, and, look, I look at this and say this is actually what I want in a negotiator. I want someone who's representing Canada who isn't going to back down at the first sign of trouble. Sure. Now, here's where I think we are. We have roughly four days to go until this October 1st deadline, which was really an American deadline. It was never a Canadian deadline. Why is it an American deadline? They wanted to roll in any agreement they got with Canada, with Mexico, get it to Congress, try to get some things approved before the current Mexican president steps down on December 1st. Uh, Are we going to have a deal in the next four days? Well, there is a little time in Christia's calendar, and there is a little time in Mr. Lighthizer's calendar, and they could get together, but here's the issue. Mr. Lighthizer said, and this is his comment, uh, Canada's not prepared to compromise. Well, okay, I could take it like that, but I could also take it, you're not prepared to compromise either. It seems like both sides have dug in their heels. And I can give you a simple example of this. This Clause 19 was called the Dispute Resolution Mechanism. The Americans wanted out, 
period, full stop. We don't want that in there. Canada does want it in there. There isn't really any middle ground there. One side or the other is going to have to give in. Why are we not giving in? Because in the last 25 years under NAFTA, we've taken America to dispute resolution at least a half a dozen times. And guess what? We've won a half a dozen times, mm. therefore we want to see it in there. Now let me think for a second. Who lost? Oh yeah, the United States. So why do they want it out? Because they lost a half a dozen times. I get where both sides are coming from, but you've got to, you've got to try to find the middle ground. Trump's favorite argument yesterday was about all oh, these evil tariffs on dairy. 300% tariffs on dairy. He's correct. After a quota of American milk that comes in duty-free... If they try to exceed that, we put a 300% duty, and yes, he's right. It effectively keeps that American milk out of the marketplace. Now, I think we are prepared to let more American milk in duty-free, some quantity more. If it's 100,000 liters today or a million liters today, maybe 2 million, maybe 3 million, but we aren't prepared to take the cap off. Why? In the United States, farmers can produce as much as they want, and for every liter of milk they produce, they get a subsidy from the American government. Even if they can't sell it, even if they wind up dumping it on the field, they're going to get money. That's not the way our farmers work. For them to get money, they've got to sell everything they make. And that's why we have the quota system and supply management. We aren't going to throw that away because we don't want farmers dumping food on the ground. We need to find this middle ground. But it's got to be, again, a compromise on both sides. I think we're prepared to move a bit, but clearly the amount we're prepared to move is not enough for the United States. Obviously, this is dragging out to the very end. That being said, when with Canada in the position that it is in, is there any advantage to it getting a deal before the deadline? Well, I, I think here the concern isn't so much Mr. Trump and Mr. Lighthizer and Wilbur Ross, who's the Secretary of Commerce, but our other friends. Justin Trudeau has had sort of, if you'll call it, a two-pronged attack here. Yes, we talked to them, but we're also talking to our friends. Who are our friends? The roughly 38 governors whose states rely heavily on Canadian trade, the various senators, the various House of Representatives people. And so far it's been working. The rumor or the statements in Washington are we cannot imagine looking at a new NAFTA or USMC or whatever it's going to be called um, without Canada being there. So that has been the, the talk from senators and House of Representatives. However, just in the last week, many people are getting a little frustrated. Can't you sign something? Can't you find some middle ground? And so, I, I, Scott, I'm going to propose this. I think a possible outcome, rather than it being deal or no deal, a third scenario is what I'm going to call NAFTA 1.9, meaning we've got a lot we've done in the last 14 months. We've come to an agreement on like 95% of an agreement. Could we sign that with the United States and then park? Say, here are two issues that are unresolved. They are not part of NAFTA 1.9. We're going to keep talking about them, but at least we can sign this, add this to the Mexican part, get it there. I think our friends in Congress would love that and would be very happy to support us in that and also support us as we keep looking. And why might we want to put those on a table? Well, in six weeks, maybe even a little less now, maybe five weeks, are the midterm elections in the United States when it's quite possible that control of the House and the Senate might swing from Republican hands to Democratic hands. Then again, there might be more people willing to support us on these tougher issues. So get what we can through. That's what I would like to try to do so we don't waste the last 14 months. 
keep our friends happy uh, in the United States, and yet at the same time not not to betray what we need as Canada in this free trade agreement. I've heard you mention that before uh, in the in the media, Marvin. My question is, what's the advantage for the United States to do that, especially when the issues that we're not signing are the most contentious issues? <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. They may seem contentious, but there's actually a lot of good things in what we've already negotiated. We've already modernized this agreement, and there's plenty in there for Mr. Trump to, to shout about if he goes out on, uh, on the campaign trail. What's in it for the United States? Well, if I'm Mr. Trump, uh, I need to show some victories here. Yes, last year he passed some tax cuts, but already it looks like those tax cuts are going to lead to at least a trillion-dollar deficit in this year's budget in the United States. That's not something he wants to take out on the campaign trail. Yes, he got his last Supreme Court nominee through. That's Neil Gorsuch. He may get Kavanaugh through. He can take that out. But otherwise, look at the other things he's fighting, whether it is you know, the, the Russian negotiations or some of the other allegations out there. He He would like, I think, to have a victory and say, you see, this is why you elected me. Look, I got this new NAFTA, USMC, whatever it is, and he could take that out there and say, that's why you elect somebody like me, and you need to elect Republicans. It would give him something else to talk about so he doesn't have to be quite so defensive, at least during these press conferences. What are your thoughts on his uh, idea of the name change and how you can leave out what you want to leave out of this? I mean, <laughs> what does that say? It's just bizarre. Uh, all of these agreements, whether you know, we shorten them up, we call it the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, CETA, the Comprehensive Something or Other on Trade, and I don't even know what all the letters stand for. So we always turn these things into an acronym. So same thing with NAFTA. Okay, he says he just really, really hates the word. Oddly enough, he said in the press conference yesterday that he doesn't say the word out loud, even though he said the word out loud several times during the, the um, press conference. Uh, USMC, oh my God, yes, U.S. Military Corps, U.S. Yeah. Marine Corps, really, U.S. Mexico, Canada, yes. Apparently know, General Kelly liked that, though. Yes, apparently his chief of staff <laughs> likes it a lot, and that chief of staff may not be there in six months, who knows. I, I You know, I, the name is the least important part of the agreement, the substance is, and this is also a man, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm Trump bashing here, but he, he does not read anything, he only listens to oral briefings, so he sort of hears what he wants to hear from these things. He'll seize on something, in this case the, the high tariffs when you cross the free threshold for American milk, and that's what he keeps hammering home, losing sight of so much else. This is also why, by the way, if we could, if Mr. Lighthizer and Ms. Freeland could find something they could agree on, I actually think it would be an easy sell to Trump because he's not going to read it. So, Mr. Lighthizer and Mr. Ross, all they have to do is extol, well, Mr. Trump, we got this, 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 and this. He'll hear that, say it's wonderful, and he, he won't read the fine print. So, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'd only put the odds now at about 50% that we'll have a deal by October 1. Uh, speaking of the U.N., your thoughts on when he spoke and uh, got laughter as a response? Yeah, amazing. Just to me, absolutely amazing. In the history of the United Nations, this is an organization that was formed 70 years ago, 1948, so 70 years. Um, American presidents often have spoken to the General Assembly with rapt attention, with rapt attention. Everyone was listening closely, you know, listening to the translations, hanging on every word. Every word, by the way, also carefully chosen as to what is said in front of the United Nations because they're saying it to the world. Mr. Trump got up, and, and I think everyone in the room said, okay. Last year he got up, and he said, my methodology is to put America first. By the way, you folks should all be doing that, too. 
which it runs completely contrary to what the United Nations is all about. It's not all about me. It's about us and the world at large. So what's he going to do this year? And this is how he began. He said, ladies and gentlemen, since I was here last year in the first year and a half in my administration, we've gotten more done than any other administration in the history of the United States. Mm. And the people started to laugh. Mm. Trump was taken aback. He was boasting about his performance to his crowds that turn up at his rallies. That's when they start to stand up and cheer. And here the world is saying, really? You got more done? You've got to be kidding. What are you smoking, Donald? And his re- he paused, didn't know what to do, and he said, well, that wasn't the reaction I was expecting, but okay. And he kept going. He, he, this is where he can be so tone deaf when he gets in front of an audience that's not his own people. Absolutely amazing. Never saw a moment like that before. Luckily, maybe we'll never see it again. How do you sell that in the U.S.? You know, again, here's the funny thing, Scott. The United States is, we call it bifurcated, meaning it's broken really into two groups of people. Those people who love Mr. Trump love Mr. Trump. There is nothing he could do that's wrong. As he said during the campaign, he could take a gun on on Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody, and they would cheer. If he decided to shoot Stormy Daniels or executor or what have you, his base loves him. But here's the problem. His base is shrinking a bit. Those people who thought he was going to drain the swamp, the swamp's not been drained. Those people who thought there was going to be a big change, there isn't. Those people who thought he was going to improve their pocketbook didn't. Now, there are rich people who certainly have gotten wealthier in the last year and a half, but the poor and the middle class have not. Uh, They were waiting for all the jobs to come back. No jobs have come back. He's going to bring coal back. Coal hasn't come back. Um, there are people rapidly getting disillusioned with it, Mr. Trump, and this is why I think there's this great possibility these midterm elections will be a wake-up call if if the Democrats wrest control of the House or the Senate or even both. Then what will the second half of Mr. Trump's presidency be? He's not going to have the same free hand. These uh, uh, these imposition of tariffs that he's done is far exceeding the power under that clause. There is no national security issue with Canada, therefore there should be no tariffs. Even the Republicans today say that, but they were afraid to challenge him because they were afraid of the man. The Democrats won't be the least bit afraid. So the second half of his presidency could could be quite different. Uh, getting back to uh, Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump's relationship, yeah. what about the rumor floating around? Well, it was asked by the press, did, uh, the, did uh, President Trump turn down a meeting with uh, Justin Trudeau, he said, yes, the PMO's office says there's no meeting scheduled. There was nothing requested. Mm-hmm. And then we'll add that to also they happen to be at the same luncheon. Trudeau passed him, yep. stopped by to shake his hand. He ignored him until he got tapped on the shoulder. He stayed seated, didn't rise. Trudeau has said, don't read anything into that. I'm going to, so get this, Scott, I am going to believe Mr. Trudeau, and I'm not going to believe Mr. Trump. Now, I know that comes as a shock to you, but since he has been elected, according to many sources who check these things, Mr. Trump lies on average 15 times a day because I think I don't think he intentionally lies. I think he just doesn't remember. He lives completely in the moment, and whatever makes sense to him in that moment, that's the reality at that moment. Uh, I don't think when we when uh, so Bill Kelly talked to me Monday morning. And he said, "Do you think the two leaders are going to have a meeting?" I said, "Nothing has been scheduled." So I don't think that any meeting had been sought. Uh, Mr. Trudeau was there really to lobby on behalf of getting a seat on the Security Council. He wasn't expected to give a speech to the General Assembly. He wasn't expecting to meet Trump. 
maybe even being at this luncheon was a complete surprise to him. Uh, Ms. Freeland and Mr. Um, Lighthizer, they were hoping to squeeze in some time around there, and I think they did. But I'm going to believe Justin on this one, and I think Trump, it, that just plays into his hand. That also yeah. plays into the comment he made that, well, I'll just, I'll just put tariffs on the automobiles, and, you know, that's the mother load, isn't it? That's going to bring you folks to your knees. I'll ruin your economy. I, I, it's like a Bond villain all of a sudden is stepping out of the shadows. You know, okay, Mr. Bond, give me this, or we're going to ruin your economy. Who talks like that? What world leader threatens like that, especially an ally as close as Canada? Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the Ontario government has laid out their plans for distribution of recreational pot when it becomes legal as of October 17th. Here's what Ontario Attorney General uh, Caroline Mulrooney had to say about how it's all going to go down. Municipalities would have a one-time window to opt out of permitting physical cannabis retail within their municipal boundaries. The deadline for such opt-outs would be January 22nd, which is three months after the municipal elections. All right, let's bring in Michael Armstrong, Ph.D. Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University, and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I'm happy to be here. Your thoughts on uh, the PC's version of how distribution will work as opposed to the Liberals? Uh, Well, obviously some drastic differences, private sector versus public sector for most of the retailing. Uh, probably more important uh, from both a consumer point of view and a policy point of view is a vastly larger number of stores are likely to come out because of that. Uh, the Ontario government in their kind of preview of the legislation yesterday uh, indicated there would be no overall cap on store numbers, so they're sort of following the Alberta model and leaving that up to uh, private businesses aside. Uh, if we see numbers... Uh, proportional to what Alberta has based on the difference in populations. That means we could you know, easily see uh, something like 2,000 uh, retail stores across the province. Uh, your thoughts on the cap. Should there be a cap? What's the significance of that? Um, I don't see a point of having a cap. Um, it's, uh, it just seems like an artificial restraint. Either if the cap is uh, high, then business uh, would never hit it anyway. If the cap is low, then you question, okay, what are we, we're restricting the number of stores, what does that accomplish? Um, so some provinces have done that. Uh, Saskatchewan uh, did cap the number of stores, so uh, at about 51 for their uh, much smaller population. Um, I think that kind of defeats the purpose. I mean, the, you're trying to li- uh, legalize cannabis to drive out the black market. You have to compete with that existing black market, which for better or worse, is pretty much everywhere. Uh, so you want your retail stores to go, you know, again, for better or worse, pretty much everywhere, anywhere there's a sufficient market, a sufficient demand. What about advantages to the private way that the PCs are electing for distribution versus what the, the, the past Liberal government was, uh, was suggesting? What are your thoughts on both those systems? Um, in principle, public sector and private sector retail, I think both have uh, potential advantages. Um, I think the private sector, uh, given their profit motives, their uh, built-in desire to serve the customer to get more sales, uh, they would have the advantage at providing uh, probably better service, uh, responding to customer preferences, that kind of thing. 
Um, on the other hand, the public sector, because they don't feel they have to make that profit, or we're probably better at the uh, uh, public education, uh, informing the consumer, um, because that's also part of the public policy objective is to, uh, you know, okay, if, if somebody wants something, okay, we should provide it, but uh, we should also be educating them about the uh, potential risks of using the substance. So public sector could be better at that. Uh, whereas private sector is probably better at actually serving uh, consumers and, and helping to drive out the black market. The other difference, though, is in the details of implementation. The previous Liberal government set the number of stores far too low. They are only aiming for about 40 in the first year, and uh, they had only actually made progress on about four before the uh, election uh, turfed them out. So uh, public versus private in principle, there's advantages either way, uh, but the previous public plan uh, was, I think, woefully inadequate. So I think this new private sector plan is, is much better in those respects. What about cost of the to the government with both of these plans? What about profit for the government under both those? Uh, well, cost is easier to, to nail down in the sense of uh, this approach, the provincial government and therefore us as taxpayers, uh, we avoid the upfront cost of having to set up a dis- distribution retail network uh, having to... So in other buy. words, because they're not doing it through uh, a public system, it's there's no need to build all the cannabis stores like there would be LCBOs. Uh, well, we won't be paying for them. Yeah. Uh, the private co- companies will be building or renting or renovating. Right. Uh, all those expenses will be borne by them. Uh, whereas uh, with an LCBO kind of model, we would be, as taxpayers, would be paying that upfront cost. In the long term, uh, that's really up in the air because no one's really sure uh, how big the legal market will be, uh, how profitable it will be, how much of that profit will occur at the production end versus the retail end. Uh, In the short term, the next couple of years at least, I don't think uh, any of the provincial governments really expect to make money on cannabis. Uh, Whatever revenues they take in from uh, taxes and such, I think they'll be spending far more on setting up enforcement, regulatory regimes, that kind of thing. Um, so five years from now, that I think that would be a very good question, but right now, don't plan on making money, uh, and as a government, don't plan on making money, whether you're private or public sector retailing. Does the government lose any money by not operating these these systems by, them, uh, by themselves? Do they lose money by farming this out to private uh, entrepreneurs? Well, uh, potentially. Because they're going to have to pay for, li- will they not have to pay for licensing? Would they not make it back there? Well, that's exactly it. it. A lot depends on the details of the variables. If the retail stern, retailing end turns out to be very profitable, uh, then yes, the government would be missing out on, on getting their uh, direct share of that. But as you just brought up, uh, government has other tools. Uh, so there's already, uh, you know, we have the uh, HST, uh, the sales taxes that are going to go on automatically. The uh, federal government has put an excise tax on, which the province gets a share of. Um, the provincial government could easily add increase or, uh, that tax later if they find the industry is profitable. Uh, licensing fees uh, could be kind of nominal, like a lot of small retailers, or they could be quite hefty if uh, if it turns out you know the industry is profitable and can afford it. So, yeah, there's ways the government can get their uh, their cut if they uh, if they see that there's actually money to be made there. Are you and su- don't forget they still will be running the uh, online. Retail, which is actually the cheapest way to to Mm -hmm. sell a product. Um, So their profit margin 
might actually be better in some ways than the private sector. Are you surprised we are here considering how alcohol is distributed in this province? Um, in yes, uh, it's a big change. Um, can you see el- hand, can you see alcohol going private? Oh well, that's a whole another question. Mm. And uh, with the conservative government in power, which was I was about to say. I'm not surprised, given that we now have a conservative government in in uh, power, uh, and this has kind of been a long-standing uh, tradition that the left-wing governments prefer to have uh, public ownership of all kinds of things, and the uh, right-wing governments prefer private ownership of all kinds of things. Uh, and in some cases, they, those preferences stand regardless of whether it actually makes sense. Uh, so. Uh, with uh, Premier Ford and the Progressive Conservatives taking over the government, uh, it doesn't surprise me that their their first inclination is to say, "Okay, what what don't we have to do? What can we uh, what can we hand out to the private sector?" Because in principle, we'd rather not have any of it. Um, and since they took power, where the public sector retailing that the Liberals had planned really hadn't gone very far, it was very easy for them to just yeah. turf it all out. Uh, what what, what um, yeah. are your thoughts on allowing those that were operating in the gray area or illegally uh, to apply for licenses, providing they stop producing or selling rather by October 17th, which kind of seems odd because uh, at the end of the day, you're just going from one to the other. Are you surprised they're allowing those that were working in the gray area to do that? Well, that actually brings up a bigger question. So Toronto, or it's not Toronto, the Ontario government is not putting a cap on the total number of stores, but it does seem they're going to have all, uh, quite a number of limits on uh, who owns those stores, how many stores they have, what their background can be. So one of those, as you just brought up, uh, if you are operating a legal store but you shut down by October 17th, you would be eligible to apply. Uh, one of the uh, video presentations I saw indicated that uh, you could actually have a previous uh, pot uh possession charge on your record, but as long as it was a minor one, you would still be able to apply for a license. Uh, what about if, if you apply now, can you be in business by October 17th and just October 16th you're on the gray side, October 17th you're on the legal side? Well, the first problem there is nothing is legal uh, on the retail side until April. Good point. Uh, oh, so yes, yeah, so you're right. It's between uh, so, October and, and, and the if spring. If you're running a illegal... So they want you to be clean for six months before they'll give you the license. Yes, exactly. So uh, if it was just a one-day transition, yeah, uh, I think that would that would be more attractive to the current uh, dispensaries. Uh, but you've nailed it exactly. They have to basically shut down for four months or convert, convert themselves to uh, you know a coffee shop or something for four months five months. Um, and the other catch is they have to do that, not entirely being sure they'll actually be able to get a license. That's the, the other thing. There is no guarantee, right? Uh, because there, you still have to apply. There are different steps where it's possible it could be turned down for something as simple as zoning regulations. That being said, Michael, you're out of business by October 17th, or sorry, April, October 17th or April uh, seven, or April 1st anyway, right? Simply because if you're not licensed, they're going to really crack down on you once it does become uh, legal. Well, that's, that's certainly the assumption. That's certainly the message the pro- province is trying to give. Do you think we're going to still see gray area operations after April? There are already uh, gray market 
uh, dispensary owners saying they're just going to keep running um, and kind of see what happens because, you know, part of it is a question of enforcement. Right now, the enforcement, the police are enforcing the rules, but, you know, it's not their number one priority, so they kind of get around. Yeah, but once this becomes a taxable product, you can see that completely changing. Uh, Then there becomes more incentive, yes, for the the government to shut it down quickly. Um, So I think... uh, I think most of them are going to disappear, either transition to legal or get out of the market or maybe just start selling accessories or something like that, because I think you're right. Yeah. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see some continue to try uh, operating in one way or another. And, of course, there'll still be just some straight black market uh, sales still operating, um, regardless, as long as they can make money. There's no cap on how many of these outlets you can have. Um, who's going to buy into them? Is this going to be mom and pop, or is this going to be big corp? Ah, well, there are some limits on who can own them, uh, although they're not well-defined yet, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the legislation says. The one that was uh, laid out yesterday was that anyone who's got a production license will be limited to a single retail outlet in Ontario. So the big corporate producers like Canopy Growth, Aurora, uh, who would like to set up their own chains across the province uh, are just have just been told no. You can only have one store, uh, you know, sort of a one factory outlet. Canopy Growth right. presumably would set theirs up in Smith Falls, their main uh, production site. Um, so that measure, although the government didn't say it, sounds like it is kind of indirectly encouraging mom and pop stores uh, or mom and pop uh, producers. You know, have a, a micro a single right. greenhouse, grow your own stuff, and then sell it yourself. So it won't be like a craft brewer's thing, or, well... Well, it might. Yeah, it could um, be, yeah. But that's one of the details I'm, I'm looking to see, because uh, they might you, know, you have a production license in the federal and a, a retail license in the province, but still require you ship all your pot through the provincial wholesaler. Uh, so you grow it, you send it to the right. central warehouse, and then you get it back from the central warehouse. That would be kind of silly, but governments do these things sometimes. Um and there were some hints in the announcement that there might be some other limits, uh, perhaps on, uh, like Alberta has a market share limit. No, no one can have more than 15% of all the retail outlets. Um, is that going to show up in the legislation this afternoon? I don't know. I'm uh, interested to see. What about online sales versus uh, the shops that will be uh, available after April? Wh- where do you think the public's going to go? Um. Well, there are a lot of people who are very comf- comfortable now buying things online, buying everything from Amazon, or uh, even sometimes you buy things from the local store these days, uh, but you purchase them through the site and then pick them up at the store. Um, so I think there will be quite a bit of use to that site. In fact, uh, it, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it gets overloaded the first couple of days as people try to uh, create accounts, log in, and all that good stuff. Um, what about those records and people crossing borders and such? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking of next is, however, there uh, will probably also be reluctance, at least on some uh, people, about uh, yeah, creating that record uh, as opposed to going to a store and paying cash and uh, having nothing on your record. Um, I know some of the other provinces... Do you think this will be largely a cash business at a store? Um. I don't know. I mean, will people uh, feel comfortable using their debit cards or their credit cards? Uh, that's a, a good question. Um, I, what some provinces are doing is they have set up um, 
uh, one of the maritime provinces, I forget which one's which now, Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, uh, they're both running their public sector. They have government-owned stores, and they're both run through their uh, liquor outlets or their liquor uh, agency. Uh, but at least one of them has set it up so that w- if you use your credit card, what shows up on the receipt is the liquor agency oh. parent company name, hmm. not the cannabis uh, store name. So if the Ontario uh, Ontario Cannabis Stores, OCS, uh, sets that up, then there won't be much record uh, to be concerned about because your credit card statement will just say uh, maybe LCBO. Uh, or Ontario government or something. But if it actually says Ontario Cannabis Corporation uh, or something like that, then some people, I think, will uh, question that. What about consistency with stores in the private sector? I mean, it it certainly won't be like an LCBO sort of thing. It'll be quite a hodgepodge, won't it? You'll have all the glorious variety of... Private sector retailing. Yeah. Um, so there'll be different styles of store decor. Uh, some are already talking about kind of a coffee shop uh, theme. Uh, some are going more of a clinical, uh, cool, professional look to them. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if there's a few that go with kind of a retro uh, reefer madness, uh, yeah. just to kind of play up the stereotypes. Um, so. That's what the private sector is really good at, is they try different things, they innovate, and some of those innovations will uh, probably succeed wildly, and some of them will probably fail wildly, and that's okay. That's what how the private sector works. So there'll be, I think, a couple years of sorting things out, finding out what works, finding out what consumers actually like. Uh, how and, will these retailers advertise? Because there is no advertising. Well, that's... Another, uh, you know, we talk about gray market. That's going to be a gray area. Um, it certainly hasn't stopped Canopy from doing anything prior to uh, October 17th. That's for sure. Well, now, that's one of the distinctions is until October 17th, there are no rules on advertising. Yeah. Uh, as of October 17th, then the federal law kicks in uh, in terms of limiting advertising. Uh, so you won't be able to have... Uh, uh, endorsements from celebrities on those ads, for example, you won't be able to have uh, ads that make the product look glamorous or exciting. But what about the canopy? What about the canopy? What about the canopy high ads? Um, yeah, I've seen some of those on on websites. Um, you are allowed to do advertising that is what they call informational, uh, providing information uh, to consumers. Uh, you are allowed to advertise as long as it's in a medium where it should be mostly adults who are going to see it. Um, but it's not. I don't think it's very well understood at this point how all those terms are going to be interpreted and therefore enforced. So how, you know, how exciting does something have to be before it becomes mm-hmm. too exciting for uh, uh, federal legal purposes? Um, I mean, most if you have a good advertisement for a product, it hopefully is exciting, uh, evokes an emotion and triggers you to want to go out and, and buy something. Well, you won't be able to do quite that, but maybe you can do something educational that kind of hints at your product. Um, that, that's going to be interesting to see, and I don't think anybody really is sure. Last question. What about smoking anywhere you can smoke tobacco? That one, I think, was a surprise, uh, particularly given the announcement back in August about um, – where when the conservatives had announced they were switching to private sector, 
almost everything they said in that announcement was about law and order, talking about safety and security. And now we got this announcement uh, yesterday that, oh, yeah, you'll be able to smoke it pretty much almost anywhere you could smoke a cigarette. Um, so that surprises me. I think from a business point of view, that's a, a plus in the sense it just makes it simple. Uh, some other jurisdictions, there's all kinds of rules. Uh, some of the rules vary from municipality to municipality, and consumers could actually get you know, confused as, okay, where am I actually allowed to smoke? Um, so the shift from only in your privately owned home to, well, basically anywhere you can smoke a cigarette uh, is good from that perspective. Now, I know my colleague uh, who works in uh, our health uh, sciences faculty uh, finds it rather more shocking. Uh, he doesn't think it's a great idea from the public health perspective. Uh, so maybe you want to get him on your next show. Mm, good point. Michael Armstrong has been with his Ph.D. associate professor at Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure to chat. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Yesterday, the P.C. government decided against the minimum wage hike that was scheduled for 2019. You might remember that uh, under the Win Liberals, the minimum wage increased from 1160 to $14 an hour. Uh, last January 1st and then was planned to go up to 15 uh, come January 1st. That has now been stopped. To talk more about all of this, uh, Julie Kwasinski is with us, Director of Provincial Affairs, Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and is with us now. Julie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I am happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So the current rate sitting what it is at $14, there was a big stink when this happened way back when. What sort of feedback have you been getting back from uh, from businesses in regard to that increase? What we've been hearing is anecdotally on the streets um, amongst small business owners is that it was a huge hit to take all at once. And you're looking at 21% because previously it was 1160 and it went up to $14, so that's 21% in only three months. So that's a huge hit to take for a small business owner that doesn't have the wiggle room of their large, larger counterparts to absorb such a swift increase and of such a great magnitude. And especially in certain sectors where the employees, where you would have more minimum wage employees. That's an obvious point. But I think you have to also factor in that when you look at an increase of any kind in the minimum wage, it's just not that value. There are additional costs. There are payroll costs or payroll taxes associated with any wage increase. So we figured out if the, let's say the government had not kept this promise to go to 15, it would have been roughly an extra hit of $2,200 per minimum wage employee on top of the extra dollar. So that's a huge hit for a business owner to take. And people don't think of that. They just see the extra dollar or the extra 240, the extra 260. So that's been a factor as well, especially with one of those added costs in that $2,300 extra is the Canada Pension Plan. That's going to go up. It's a federal government thing. That's going up starting January 1st. 
of 2019. So to be hit with all these different things, and then hydro costs are still an issue. The government knows that. So you have to look at it, look at it in the context of all the costs that a business would be facing. What about those, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, that say, you know, these people deserve uh, to be paid a a living wage. Uh, We haven't seen that much a dent in stats from the increase that we've just gone through. What will boosting at an extra dollar hurt? Well, I mean, you look at, I just told you that extra dollar costs roughly $2,300. And if you're looking at return on on investment, is the minimum wage earner really better off? That's the actual question. And I think we need to have a broader discussion. And I Why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be if they're making more money? They are, yes. But you have to look at each and every specific situation. We have heard in many cases where the employer does not want to actually get rid of the position, they've cut the hours. So depending on how many hours have been cut back, is the minimum wage earner farther ahead? Next point, costs have gone up. People can see that prices have gone up, whether it's their chicken at their favorite chicken place. Mm -hmm. That cost, that cost increase is affecting everyone, the minimum wage earner included. So is the minimum wage earner better off? That's the question. And are there better ways to help? low-income earners. And I think that's a discussion that's worth having. We wanted to have that discussion with the previous government. They would have nothing to do with it. They were convinced this is the way, our way or the doorway. Why not have a broader discussion? Are there tax credits? Are there things we can do for training? You've heard likely about job shortages in Ontario. You know, it's, it, people it, can't find people to fill the jobs. Maybe if some people were trained, they could take those jobs if there were better training programs. Uh, we had many advocates on when this uh, all went down and, 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 and even up to recently saying, see, look, we did this and it doesn't seem to be hurting anyone. Is that, is that fair? It's very unfair. And here's why. Very simply, the minimum wage increase, 1160 to 14, happened January 1st. A year has not even gone by. Every month we get these different job numbers. Some people will say, oh, it's because of the minimum wage. This is why the job, we're seeing great job losses. Or another month, oh, it's part-time jobs, full-time jobs, whatever the situation. But the point I'm trying to make simply is this. If you are going to judge whether or not somebody actually was able to absorb this. You've got two issues here. Big businesses, I already acknowledge, they have more financial wiggle room. They can ignore it. You don't see any stats that are specific that these job losses are specifically in the small business industry, medium business industry, large business industry. And we had asked the government for an economic impact analysis to make sure that businesses of all sizes could absorb this. So in the end, you need more time to figure out what the real impact is. And again, I am not an economist, would never claim to be one, but I like to think I'm a commonsensical, logical person. And I would think that if somebody actually does a study that goes out there and they ask questions that can determine whether each and every economic occurrence happened because specifically due to a minimum wage increase, that's the only way you're going to know. Otherwise, it's all speculation and theorization. It's too 
early to tell because one month it might look there's no impact another month it might look like there is an impact the only way you're going to know is to isolate minimum wage and do your data analysis on that isolation alone is there going to be much of a difference or is there much of a difference between small businesses and big should there be a different formula for small businesses versus big because as you said they both may employee employ rather minimum wage employees but one certainly has a bigger bank than the other Well, I think the way the government has done it is, and this has been going on for quite some time, people are not aware that there are different categories, and I don't have the list in front of me, but students, there's a different rate. So when we say 14, we're talking about the general minimum wage. There are, there's the minimum wage for students, the minimum wage for liquor servers, for home workers, for hunting and fishing guides. These are things people aren't aware of. But as far as small business, whether you would have a wage that the minimum wage for small businesses is a certain amount, that's something that could certainly be explored because I believe the city of Seattle undertook that. And again, I don't have, I, oh yeah, I actually do have the stats in front of me. So the city of Seattle in the U.S., they actually are getting to $15 for the minimum wage in 2021, but they have certain factors. Like if you're a small employer, 500 or fewer, if you pay medical benefits and or your employee earns tips, then it's $15 for you by 2021. Do you think we should have done something like that as opposed to just canceling the 15? Do you think they should have said maybe a bit now, a bit later, and eventually get there? I think what they should have done is conducted a fulsome economic impact analysis. Because number one, all of this stuff is arbitrary. The number 15 came from a United States movement called Fairness for 15. It moved into Canada, starting in Alberta, then moved into Ontario, into BC, and and the story goes on, and God, God knows where it may or may not move next. So I think... It should have been done with more thought and, for good policy, more evidence, evidence-based policy. Because if you look at it, there is no study anywhere that shows the impact on a jurisdiction like Ontario, so not a city like Seattle, a provincial jurisdiction with a certain population that can it absorb it or not, 21% in three months. Nobody has a study like that. So to go and say, well, oh, Seattle can do it, New York can do it, completely different situations. And you're comparing apples to pears and peaches, frankly. There's no apples to apples, evidence-based policy that Ontario could absorb it, yet the government, the previous government, went ahead and did it because it was all about, not about helping people, helping themselves get reelected, And that's essentially... What, what the whole story was about, bottom line. Julie Kwasinski has been with us, Director of Provincial Affairs, Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Julie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It was my pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's get the other side of the story. Let's bring in Warren Smokey Thomas, President of OPSU. He is with us now. Smokey, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, this can't be a surprise to you, I guess, Smokey, because this was in the campaign. Was it too much, too fast? Well, I, I personally didn't think so. 
I did when I did testify before the committee presented, and I said there there would be unintended consequences that I would hope that the Liberal government would take into account. And in fact, John Yakabuski had some good ideas. So what what the Tories had recommended was that the government create a what they might call a small business fund, and that would be for small businesses that could demonstrate they really would be negatively impacted. Like the government now subsidizes uh, daycare workers two dollars an hour or something like that to you know to private daycare operators. Right. So to create a small fund, and then like on the sick leave provisions, if you're off sick, they could apply to that for reimbursement. Set some rules up around it, right? And then that would have made it easier to absorb the fifteen dollars an hour. Like I have no sympathy for Walmart or any other big chain shoppers or anybody like that. Come on, they can absorb it. They're all you know how much profits enough. But for mom and pops and small businesses, you know, I'm, I, I have friends that are small business people, and they said, uh, A, some of them actually pay more than minimum wage, even though they don't have to, because they, they like keeping the employees long term. But some said, you know, I'd love to pay, but I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't pass it all on to the customer, but I can pass some on. So anyway, I talked there, and it's anecdotal, and I just talked to some small business people that I know, and I said, well, what about the Tory idea, John's idea of, of this fund, they said that'd be awesome. We we would probably not be opposed. So, and I think, and it's pretty rich for even for a guy like me that make a good living. Uh, the lady who's just on for the CFIB, we all make a good living. But that dollar an hour is everything to some people, right? It would really like it make a huge difference in people's lives. So, you know, I'm sort of begging the government to rethink that one. I don't think they're gonna, but I, I wish they would. Then, are we and, are we being uh, is the public aware of that too, Smokey? That you know this really is two different kettle of fish when you talk to uh, when you're talking about minimum wage employees because there are those mom and pop organizations, there are those big businesses like the McDonald's and the Walmart uh, that are doing this. Is this really even a discussion we should have without breaking these down? Well, I, I I'm not sure. I think that what was lost in a lot of, there was a lot of heated rhetoric both ways. I, I tend to try to sort of see a way through the middle, right? With you and I have talked enough to, but I think that there was literally no sympathy for large corporations, right? And uh, that could afford to pay more Max Beckers, all of them, right? And they say, oh, we'll have to cut jobs. Well, they, I don't see how Max or Beckers could cut a job. They have to close the store. There's only one person in there each time. So, but, but there, there, so the debate I wish had been around more of a living wage and, and, you know, maybe even jurisdictionally based. I mean, if you tried to live in Hamilton, London, Ontario, Ottawa, Ontario, Toronto, Ontario on $15 an hour, you're, you're existing. You're not living. So, uh, you know, the debate rages on about, about all this. So I was, uh, I always felt on the side of, you know, I applauded the liberals for doing it. Was it a bit fast? I said, you know, really not for me to comment on, but perhaps a bit, you know, and, and if they'd have done some more consultation, but they, they took the, that bold step for, you know, we could argue, debate the reasons why, you know, they want to get reelected, a whole bunch right. of other things. You know, I hope, I would hope that they did it for altruistic reasons, not political, but we could debate that as well. But so, I, you know, sort of, I spoke this morning at the Association of Food Banks of Ontario. My union, we're their major union sponsor. We helped them organize a, a, a lobby day. Uh, today is, uh, 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 you know, hunger month. 
And in the comments that the, you know people from the food banks were talking about was a living wage, was the $15 an hour, how it would lift people out of poverty. And uh, they were certainly wanting to keep, you know, keep that extra dollar. So a lot of people want to keep it. I'd like to see people keep it. But on the flip side, in fairness to really small, you know, mom and pops and corner stores and you know, somebody has a body shop, has one employee, you know what, maybe that fund for, you know, you could you could access that fund to offset some of the unforeseen costs that you could incur. Now, I do know a lot of small businesses, if one of their workers is off sick, yes, some don't pay them for the day, but most people do. So, uh, so it's, you know what I mean? It's, yep. I, I, I would hope that Doug Ford would, would say to his ministers, you know, so we're going to, you know, we're for the people. Well, all right, well then, let's go out, though, really, and, and get, if they're going to, if they're not going to keep the dollar an hour in there, which I, you know, really, I think it's a moot point. They're not going to keep it in there, but let's talk about anti-poverty reduction. The liberals talked about it, but they really didn't do anything except this big move near the end of their tenure. So, but let's have that honest conversation. What can, what can they have? How can we help out the people trying to get out of poverty, trying to find a full-time job? And, you know, the whole host of issues here, right? So what can we do, actively do, as a caring government, caring society, to help eliminate poverty? And that really is, you know, if they're not going to do the vote of the 15, please don't touch the other stuff. But on the on the flip side of that, create a fund. you got money for other stuff you want, so create a fund to help small business out. And uh, and I'd be, uh, you know, I uh, intend to ask John Yakubuski for a meeting uh, on a bunch of other stuff with his ministry. But I'm going to raise this with, again with them. I say, you know, I remember when you had we had those conversations, and and uh, why don't you, you know, uh, you know, uh, put something like that forward in your own party? I think it would fly, and I think the opposition parties would probably support it as well. Is the debate from 14 to 15 as great as the the debate from 1160 to 14? And I'll say no, obviously, because the the first increase was yeah. had the greatest impact. That being said, are you surprised? Ford didn't say, you know what, we're going to instead push back 15 to this time, or we're going to put it up 25, then 50, then 75. Are, are you surprised he didn't come up with an alternative plan as opposed to just say, ah, we're going to scrap it? Yeah, I am a bit surprised. I thought he would have, because he did run on, he kept saying over and over and over, I'm for the people, right? And uh, so, I mean, the question I ask him is what people are here for, but... Uh, I thought that you know, maybe he would have said 25 cents a year for, you know, four years or something like that. Because, I mean, even a 25 cent raise on low income, you're not even keeping pace with inflation. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and people are falling farther behind. And the stats on food bank usage are staggering. Uh, you know, uh, Mississauga, 50% increase. And these are working poor. Like, so some of that, you know, I'm going to help the food banks make that some of that uh, some of that stuff really public like we we work with them a lot right we uh, one of my staffers trained 20 people last night how you lobby politicians and that kind of stuff so we're really going to help some of those stats are startling and uh, even i i knew it was kind of getting bad but i didn't realize that and it shook me up pretty good and i'm, I'm hard to knock off kilter but they're uh, so we'll help them make it public and that all but it's that living wage right it costs and I've always said, you know, I don't know how somebody could live in Toronto on the kind of, on a minimum wage yeah. job. I, I just don't. Even well, Hamilton's probably every place is getting expensive, right? Warren Smokey Thomas has been with us, president of OPSU, one of my favorite union guys. Warren Smokey Thomas, thank you so much, Smokey. Appreciate the time. Oh, Bill, thanks for having me on. All right, you. take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.